Good afternoon. I want to thank everybody for joining us this This program is intended for mature audiences only. Altitude adjustment may contain language, images, or other content that some may find offensive. Your discretion is advised. Welcome to Altitude Adjustment. Good afternoon. I want to thank everybody for joining us this afternoon. We have uh, a special guest. It's exciting for me because I've watched uh, him for work for years. Um, welcome, Mr. Art Holiday. Thank you for the invitation, gentlemen. Thank so, you for joining us, taking time out of your busy schedule. <laughs> well, let's have a great conversation then. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Absolutely. So, so congratulations first on thank you. On um, on the new job, was it something that um, that you really wanted, or a job that you felt you you was you were meant to do? Uh, neither. <laughs> <laughs> no, I um, you know I mean recently I've told this story uh, a lot of times, but uh, you know my uh, contract was going to be up in November, and I had kind of figured out a point in my career when I was genuinely happy in the morning, a show with uh, Jennifer Blome, my longtime morning co-anchor. In the afternoon, I was anchoring the 4 p.m. at KSDK with Kay Quinn, who I've worked with for 30 years. And I was going to spend 2021 figuring out okay, what does retirement look like? Do I keep doing what I'm doing right now? Do I quit radio? Do I quit television and just work half days? Uh, you know, and my my boss, Carol Fowler, our director of content, uh, had something else in mind. And last September, she uh, called me. We have a monthly uh, meeting that she does with uh, all the talent, uh, the reporters and the uh, anchors just to check in with them to see if they have something to talk about. And she started off the conversation was, I have an interesting question to ask you. And that turned out to be the understatement of the decade. Hmm. Uh, she was asking me if I would consider becoming news director. And my first response was silence because <laughs> I, I was stunned. I was not seeking this job. I didn't see it coming. I didn't think this was the way my career was going to end. And she said, well, think about it. And my first email to her, I said, I hate meetings. And most of this job is going to meetings. And she said, you're going to have to make peace with that. <laughs> um, but to, to get back on a more serious note, uh, I understood what this meant on multiple levels. From a historical perspective, there had never been a black news director at KSDK or mm -hmm. any of the other uh, major news affiliates, uh, KMOV, Fox 2. And so that was that was part of it. But beyond that, I knew that after 42 years that I had built up a lot of credibility in our newsroom so people would understand that I care not only about KSDK's newsroom, but I also care about St. Louis. So I wasn't really concerned about that, but 
they initially wanted me to take the job right off the bat as uh, at becoming the permanent news director. And I said, no, let's, let's pump the brakes. Let's just do it on an interim basis and make sure that everybody's on the same page, that the newsroom is responding to my leadership and just to see if everybody's happy with the way it's going. And then after about six or seven weeks, uh, my boss said, whenever you're ready, we already know enough. And, you know, so shortly after that, I said, yes. And, uh, you know, it's funny because people ask me all the time, well, are you having fun? Are you happy? And it's not really about me having fun or being happy because I was happy doing what I was doing before. And this is about more than just me. This is about our community and the news coverage that we provide, helping our reporters get better, hiring great people, which is probably my number one job. I'm, I'm the tip of the spear when it comes to hiring. So people have to get past me before they get to the next level. And I'm intentionally trying to hire people that are about uh, being a great teammate, being collaborative, um, being more interested in getting better than you know, um, behavior that just takes up a lot of unnecessary time. And, uh, you know, so this is an opportunity to make a difference on many levels. You don't, you don't usually choose to wait until the end of your career for the hardest part of your career. (laughs) This is the hardest part of my career because I've gone, I've gone from knowing exactly what to do you know art go out and cover this story go out and cover that story anchor this newscast okay well i've done that thousands of times i know exactly what to do even when there's breaking news and there's no script mm-hmm. well now so i've gone from that to now every day much of the time i'm doing it for the first time and i had to give myself permission to not know everything which is kind of frustrating to me at this stage of my career, but so far it's going well. My first three on-air hires started in July and they've all gotten off to great starts. Mm-hmm. And we're about to hire uh, for some other positions uh, in our newsroom. And, uh, you know, so I'm gonna try to keep that momentum going. And, uh, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, to use a basketball analogy, uh, I'm trying to hire a dream team. I want great people. If you, if you assemble enough great people who don't always make it about them all the time, and then everybody's pulling in the same direction on a consistent basis, now you've got a chance to establish some momentum. So I have a quick question. So the, um, the movement before, uh, previously, when the um, Walter Cronkites and stuff, um, News people weren't the story. They weren't being pitched as, um, you know, the the latest and greatest, and you can trust this guy. So, so how how does the how does so so now we're at a stage where uh, they want to sell the personality. Mm-hmm. So, so how does that impact being able to to give the news in a in a way that people trust it? 
Well, it, first of all, the, the trust part of it has eroded over time, especially recently. You know, we, we came uh, out of a, uh, an administration, a presidential administration that made the press more of a target than it had probably ever been before. Not that there hadn't always been contentious relationships between the people in power and the media. That's existed for a long time. It seems like it's accelerated. Uh, we've reached a point where many times facts don't seem to matter or they've at least been devalued in part because of intentional disinformation on social media, some of it from our adversaries, some of it just people making up stuff. And if you say it long enough, people will start to believe it. Especially if it aligns with their own worldview. So I don't know that it's ever been harder to gain trust right now. I mean, look at where we are with COVID. People are frustrated that the information keeps changing. If not a on a daily basis, certainly on a weekly and a monthly basis, because we're dealing with uh, a health adversary that we've never dealt with before. And so the information changes. And that's, and that's been weaponized instead of just accepting the fact that, okay, we've got COVID-19 and then a year later, oh, wow, we've got a variant of this that's worse than the first version. So some of the previous information that we had no longer applies. Well, that's been used as a weapon. Well, you can't trust the CDC. You can't trust Dr. Fauci, you know, and or whoever your target happens to be. And the messaging has been poor. That's part of it. And then part of it is just people seeing an opportunity to sow division amongst the ranks. Mm -hmm. uh, I was mentioning something to someone, I guess it was maybe yesterday. I, you know, this week, a lot of us are watching 9-11 uh, programming because of the 20th anniversary coming up. Mm -hmm. Look at how united we were in the days and weeks after 9-11 and look at how divided we are right now in part because of COVID. It's not a coincidence. Some of it is very intentional um, and we're an easy target. And one of the reasons we're an easy target is that some of our leaders have decided that division is the best way to stay in power. And, you know, it's just, uh, and then as I mentioned previously, you know, some of our adversaries from overseas uh, see this as a great opportunity. We saw it during multiple elections, and we see it now with COVID uh, in terms of disinformation. Mm -hmm. do you guys want to uh, jump in? Yes. What I was going to ask Mr. Holiday is, uh, <clears throat> besides you mentioned the meetings and you mentioned hiring, what are the other, let's just say top two or three other uh, aspects of your new job now as news director that you didn't sure. have before. Sure. One of the things that I do on a regular basis is meet with our reporters. In the past, we haven't done as good a job of communicating with some of our employees on a regular basis as we could have. And uh, it probably has cost us some people uh, deciding to leave instead of stay. 
And so when two years ago, when Carol Fowler uh, took over uh, managing both our, our digital uh, news, uh, KSDK.com and our, our apps and the newsroom, she surveyed the landscape, talked to all of the stakeholders in the newsroom, what's not working here? What needs to get better? What do we need to improve on? And the message that came back loud and clear was we want regular feedback. We want a chance to get better. We want training opportunities. We want to feel like our opinion matters. So people wanted to feel invested in the newsroom in a variety of ways. And that was part of the sales pitch to me that, okay, people already know you, they already respect you. Um, you can play a major role in fixing the things that maybe we didn't do so well before. And so that's a big part of my job is besides hiring, which I've already mentioned, mm -hmm. um, making sure that um, whatever it is that people say they want in terms of training and opportunities to get better, that we provide that. So one of the areas where people wanted to get better, a number of people, probably more people than we thought, was uh, editing. The people who didn't edit or were at the beginner level wanted to just get better, and people who were at the advanced level, you know, they wanted their PhD in editing. <laughs> and, so you've, and so we've, for the last several months, um, we pulled out, pulled uh, one of our uh, top shooters and editors, um, you know, we, we pulled him back from his normal duties and said, Randy, we need for you to teach your colleagues how to get better at editing. Because that's something that we do on a daily basis. You know, if you're a producer, sometimes you're editing material for your own show. If you're a reporter, you may be editing your own story. If you're a videographer, um, editing is a daily part of your job. And all of those groups wanted to improve. So that's a very specific example of something that I help facilitate. Um, making sure that, that people feel like they have the ability to speak up. Some people censor themselves. Some people feel like, well, why should I speak up? No one's going to listen to me anyway. And so I have to send a much different message, especially at our editorial meetings every day when we are deciding which stories that we're going to cover, uh, as well as at our uh, manager meetings. So meetings at all level, making sure that people feel like you have a voice and just emphasizing that over and over and over again. So, um, and I'm trying to think of what else. Um, you know, I, I already mentioned, I, I meet with our reporters. Uh, I do and our managing editor, Rob Edwards, we alternate months meeting one-on-one -on -one with our reporters. And those meetings are whatever the reporters want them to be. Obviously, if, if Rob or I have something specific that we wanna talk about, well, that will be part of the agenda. But some reporters wanna brainstorm about story ideas that they have. Some reporters want to uh, get some coaching on uh, the way they 
the way they read, the way they do their live shots when they're on camera. Some reporters want uh, to figure out how do I go from being a reporter to being an anchor? Sometimes they just want to vent and get something off their chest because like most jobs, eventually your job makes you crazy from time to time. And you can either decide to hold it in until it explodes Mm -hmm. or, you know, you can feel like you've got someone who's uh, invested in your mental health and will listen to you and just let, I've had people cry in some of the meetings, but they felt better afterwards because they had let it get to a point where, um, you know, the dam burst. And so all of those things and, and others, you know, the daily things that come up, unpleasant conversations, you know, when uh, two co-workers can't get along and instead of dealing with it in an adult manner, you know, they come running to the principal, well, so-and-so did this or didn't do this. Well, did you go talk to them? Well, no, I came to you. Well, I said, so, okay, so you're going to throw your coworker under the bus Mm -hmm. before you even have an adult conversation with them about, hey, we had a bad day yesterday. Can we talk this out? You know, that sort of thing. You wouldn't think that you would have to coach adults on how to treat each other like adults, but that's that takes up time periodically. So all of those things are ways that, that I can make an impact. Now, in our editorial meetings, I don't speak up every day, but when I have something to say or I make an observation, uh, I, I speak up. Uh, and I'll give you another specific example. Um, you know, recently we had uh, yet another anniversary of the uh, police shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson. And uh, I believe the actual anniversary was on a Monday. And we had been doing like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, leading up to the anniversary, we had done multiple stories, mostly about um, things going on in Ferguson and North County that have changed and improved since the actual event. So we're having our editorial meeting on that Monday, the day of the anniversary. And everybody felt like, I I shouldn't say everybody, some people felt like, well, we've already done multiple stories. Um, We don't really need, we can use our manpower to go in a different direction today. And I called a timeout and I said, today's the anniversary. It's great that we did stories on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, but we need to do something today. And so when I feel like it's necessary to speak up, I've been given a license to speak up. And, I, you know, I'm 67. I'm going to speak up at this point in my life. You know, I, I'm, I'm not afraid to speak up. Now, younger Art Holiday, who started there in 1979, no, I, I, I didn't have my voice yet. I, I have it now. And my bosses, the people who signed off on me taking this role, they said, no, that's, we want you to speak up, you know, and then that's the message that I pass along to the rest of the newsroom. We also want you to speak up. So, because collectively we're smarter and make better decisions. Roland? Um, So one question, Art, Uh, locally, where does your station rank and how do you plan to, uh, 
deal with that as far as keeping uh, the level or raising it? Um, you know, the what I've observed over my 40 years of working in St. Louis is that we've all taken turns being number one and we've all taken turns being number three. And it's been a very competitive news market over the years and continues to be so. Unfortunately, we're all competing for a shrinking audience, which makes it even more challenging. And, um, you know, so it probably seems like blasphemy for me to say this. I don't, I don't focus on the rating so much. My boss does because that's a big part of her job. Right. I mean, obviously, my job is to make things better. I let other people worry about the actual ratings because the way you move the needle in St. Louis and, and most other markets is day in and day out, you do a great job of reflecting the entire community. Now, that's a challenge because in the past, we haven't always done that. And, you know, we, we got called out in Ferguson you know, seven years ago. You want us to speak to you now, but where have you been? Why haven't you been covering the issues that led to where we are now? Right. And I hope that in some small way, my credibility helps to alleviate some of that. Mm -hmm. But our parent company, Tegna, um, is in the midst of a, an inclusive uh, journalism initiative for all 60 plus television stations where the mandate is to figure out how to reflect your entire community, you know, diverse reporting, uh, obviously race and ethnicity are part of that age is part of it. Gender is part of it. Sexual orientation and identity is part of it. Um, when I was a reporter, um, I like, along with all of those subgroups that we just mentioned, I like to check in with the creative people periodically because they're the people who make the community interesting. I like to check in with the disruptors because they're the people who are trying to push us in a direction that we've been reluctant to go, whether it's politically, religiously, um, you know, uh, in any number of ways. You know, I feel like a big part of my uh, reporting legacy was trying to seek out different voices and trying to go to areas where you normally go when the sirens and, and lights are flashing and the crime tape is up but you don't go there any other time. Mm -hmm. And, and again, that feeds distrust. If you don't come when there's something good happening or you you come into the neighborhood and ask, what would you like to see happen? What are some solutions that are working somewhere else that might work here? Um, you know, I just felt like uh, as a, I don't know, as an effective reporter and as an African-American reporter, that that was my opportunity. When I was on our storytelling unit, um, 
they basically just left me alone. They said, you know, we need two stories a week from you. And they trusted me. And uh, for the most part, I think I delivered. Uh, and now I get to use, you know, all of my different experiences. You know, if I need to go talk to our sports department, I know how to talk to them. I used to be a sportscaster. If I need to talk to one of our anchors, I know how to talk to them. I used to be an anchor. If I need to talk to one of our reporters, I used to be a reporter. I know how to talk to them. So I think all of those things are ways that uh, hopefully that I can make a difference. Do you have another question, Leonard? Yes. I, you mentioned when you used to be a sports reporter. And I, if I remember correctly, that's where I first saw you when you were a sports reporter. Uh, how did the situation come that you left sports and went, I guess, over to the news side? How did, um, that, how did that come about? That was my boss's suggestion. And uh, I'm sure most of you have figured out by now that if the boss thinks it's a good idea, it's, it's, a, good idea. it's a good idea to go along <laughs> with it. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll give you, the, I'll give you the, the medium version of the story. Okay. Um, you know, I was... I really felt like my sports casting career was going very well. I either wanted to stay in St. Louis long enough to maybe be sports director one day, or maybe get a chance of working at the network uh, as a sportscaster. And uh, and I, I did get a brief uh, flirtation with NBC Sports. Uh, it just didn't work out. And uh, you know, if you want, I'll, I'm happy to to tell that story. Uh, a little bit later, but um, so in 1989, I get called to the general manager's office and you know how your mind plays tricks on you when you get called to the principal's office, sure. you start reflecting and trying to figure out, okay, what's this all about? Because honestly, I don't even think I'd ever been to the general manager's office um, because I was a weekend sportscaster. Nobody cares about me. You know, I'm a low man on the totem pole. You know, I won, I won three sports Emmys. Uh, when I was in the sports department, but I never got to go to the ceremonies because I worked on the weekends and I was the number three guy. So I, you know, the, the Emmys that are over my shoulder here, I, I picked those up in the news director's office on Monday because, you know, when you're the number three guy, well, somebody has got to work. <laughs> Guess it'll be art. <laughs> you know? um, but anyway, so I, I get called to the general manager's office and he says, we're going to make some changes on our uh, early morning newscast. And I think you'd make a good co-anchor for Jennifer Blow. And I'm like, man, I'm in my hometown covering my hometown teams. Why are you taking this away from me? In my head, I'm not sure. saying that out loud. Um, and, you know, he's like, now this is entirely your decision. You don't have to say yes just because your boss is telling you. And I'm like, well, that sounds like a trap. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, so long story short, obviously I said yes. Now, what did he see in me that I had been doing that made him think I could do it? I don't know. I mean, he really didn't go into specifics, but he was right. I mean, he, I mean, we didn't know it that day, but he created a 22-year anchor team. They're that doesn't happen very often that, that two people who are co-anchors do that year after year after year for 22 years, because this is a volatile business. If you don't deliver the ratings, 
somebody's going to come in and say, eh, let's try something new. And so that's how that happened. I would have been fine with being a sportscaster my whole career. That's, I mean, that's what I wanted. Uh, you know, and the, the irony is, is that six months after I switched from sports to news, I got my big sports break. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm at, I've, I've already done the news that day and I'm sitting in the newsroom at my desk and the phone rings and the guy identified himself as John Filippelli. He was the coordinating producer for college basketball for NBC sports, mm-hmm. which was a very odd phone call for me to be getting. And I said, John, what can I do for you? And I, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, Bob Costas says you're pretty good and we should take a look at you. Mm-hmm. I had no idea Bob Costas was paying any attention to me, much less going to bat for me at the network level. I mean, I was in shock. And um, th- what the scenario was is that the following year, NBC was going to be broadcasting the National Basketball Association games. So I was getting a tryout to be an NBA sideline reporter. You know, I mean, this is the phone call that every um, sports TV news person waits for, whether it's news, sports, whatever. Okay. I mean, I, I just got the call. I'm going to get my shot. And so I got to do uh, two college basketball games, um, UNLV Temple. And I don't know if you all are basketball fans, but in 1990, UNLV was pretty good. You know, they won the national championship that year. Yeah, I uh, Larry Johnson, Stacey Ogman, Greg Anthony. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so I went to Philly. I did that game. I worked with uh, Marv Albert, did play-by-play. Al McGuire mm-hmm. was the color commentator. Mm-hmm. And Art Holiday was the sideline reporter. Let's go to Art Holiday on the sideline. You know, so um, – Unfortunately, the game wasn't televised here in St. Louis. So, uh, but we were getting a feed at the TV station. So they allowed my parents to come to channel five and watch, but no one else in St. Louis could see it. So that, that was, that kind of sucked. Yeah, sure. Um, And then several weeks later, I got to do another live audition. Uh, This was uh, Mizzou at uh, Notre Dame in South Bend. And I interviewed Lou Holtz uh, live during the broadcast. And uh, the game was kind of lopsided, so they didn't really need to do much with the sideline reporter. But um, And then they hired Ahmad Rashad, you know, and who was already at NBC. Uh, obviously, uh, they made a great decision because Ahmad Rashad turned out to be, uh, you know, turned out to be an excellent broadcaster. And, uh, and if you saw The Last Dance, the, um, the Chicago Bulls documentary, every time I saw Ahmad Rashad hanging out with Michael Jordan, you know, they became best friends. I'm like, oh, man, I could have become Michael Jordan's best friend. <laughs> you just missed it by that much. Just that much. Well, you know, and, and I, can, I can laugh about it now, but, man, that was, that was crushing. Yeah, I you know, I wanted that job. When you when you get that close to something that you really want, and you don't get it, yeah. and you know, I, my head was already spinning from the switch from sports to news. 
Now I'm going back to sports. And oh, by the way, if we select you, your life is going to change. You know, I mean, money, prestige, exposure, you know, I mean, who knows what would have happened if I had gotten that job. And, you know, so I had to get my get my stuff back together again because I still had a job to do at Channel 5. But, it, I mean, that was a tough time for me. You know, I, I had lunch with Bob Costas, you know, after all that went down. I said, did I do something wrong? And, you know, and, and over the years, he, he, he repeatedly remind me, reminded me that there's no shame in losing out to Ahmad Rashad. And technically, he's correct. Technically. There is no shame in it. Right. But that doesn't mean that it didn't hurt. Sure, sure. Well, that well, irony of all ironies, when you mentioned Amar Rashad, who started off his NFL career, if I'm remembering correctly, as a receiver with the St. Louis Cardinals. Bobby Moore. Bobby Moore, and he still has the record for the longest NFL catch without scoring a touchdown, 98 yards. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, back when we had a football team. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> well, hey. well, so let what me ask you. you well, one of the what? things that I, I really was, uh, I've seen uh, talent come and go, and they move on to other markets, they move on to the big networks. Um, so, was that the only opportunity that you that you that slipped through for you to, or was or was being in this market? just enough no i mean if you're if the if the question is was my master plan to stay in st louis my whole career no i thought i was going to go to bigger markets and again possibly the network um you know when i was doing weekend sports i got uh, a call from uh wabc in new york they liked my work and wanted me to send a tape so i sent it and then I never did hear anything. And then maybe a year later, um, a former coworker said, yeah, I was in the news director's office at WABC and I saw your audition tape in the slush pile. That's what we call, you know, every news director. Well, back when they used tapes, now everything's, you, you know, everything's a link. Right. But back then you, you sent physical tapes. And so most news directors had a stack of tapes from people that, wanted a job or they were considering for a job so he saw my tape there and but he but he explained that the news director who had asked for my tape got fired oh so there went wabc <laughs> i mean i never even I, I never got past the stage where they asked me for a tape i sent them a tape and that's all i ever heard so that was one huge opportunity who knows if that news director hadn't gotten fired and they flew me to New York and liked what they heard and saw, you know, maybe I would have gone from St. Louis to New York. Uh, I interviewed for a job in Cleveland and um, they asked, they, they said during the middle of the interview, um, they said that we spoke to someone who said that you're not a hard worker. What do you say to that? Mm, okay. And I, I've thought about that so many times over the years, and I'm sure it goes back to my very first job when I did a lot of stupid stuff as a young person. Mm. And luckily, I was able to 
survive, you know, some of the, the, the dumb things that, that the younger versions of ourselves, uh, often have to reflect on and, and it caught up with me and I, and I wasn't prepared for it, you know, because it, it didn't come into play with coming to St. Louis. Uh, I had was close to taking a job in Tampa when I wound up taking the job in St. Louis and it never came up, but someone probably went back and spoke to my news director or somebody else at the TV station in Oklahoma. And that observation was right. You know, I mean, I, I, I wish I had had a mentor who could have coached me and said, do this, don't do this. You know, I was 21. I was straight out of college. The only person in Oklahoma city that I knew was the person who hired me. And I, looking back, I did some stupid shit, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and it caught up with me in Cleveland, you know? So, uh, and then I, I, uh, Milwaukee flew me to, uh, their TV station. They wanted to make me their main anchor. And then ultimately they went in a different direction, which often happens. You know, they're usually not interviewing just one person. Mm -hmm. They're interviewing two or three, and then they decide, you know, however they decide, you know, who's going to be the person that they hire. So, you know, just a, a variety of things have happened that uh, led to me spending most of my career in, in my home area. And um, I don't have any regrets about it. I mean, you know, I, I remember when... Uh, Oh, wow. I hadn't thought about this in a long time. Um, when, again, when I was doing weekend sports, a uh, TV station in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, uh, wanted to fly me there and talk to me about, uh, being a sportscaster there. And, you know, in retrospect, I should have just gotten on a plane, met them face to face, heard what the opportunity was and then made a decision. But I was happy working in my hometown covering both versions of my Cardinals, football and baseball, especially baseball. Um, and th at the time, Charlotte didn't have any professional sports. Now they do. Um, but, it, you know, it was a big college basketball area, so that would have been fine because I'm a big basketball fan. But in retrospect, I should have gotten on a plane and found out what the example was. But I told the news director, I said, look, I'm happy doing what I'm doing right now. And, and he said, you know, I appreciate your honesty because most people would have just spent our money knowing that they weren't that interested in the job. Um, I don't, uh, knowing what I know now, that probably wasn't the smartest decision in the world, but you know, it's, it's all worked out, but that's, that's why I've been at KSDK for 42 years for a variety of reasons. Warren. Yeah. Um, Back to that Ferguson, Mike Brown incident, how big a, an effect that you think that had on the way people uh, view St. Louis and Ferguson? Oh, I don't think there's any question uh, that it has a, a negative impact. Uh, several years ago, uh, maybe it might have been the five-year anniversary of, uh, of the shooting, and we did a, uh, a one-hour special. And uh, one of the the segment that I was in charge of um, were all stakeholders in Ferguson. And the question that I asked them all, and, and they all had wonderful answers, uh, I asked them, 
when you meet someone new and they find out you're from Ferguson, what's their first reaction? And everybody's eyes just lit up because they'd had that experience and they'd had to explain what happened, what has taken place since, what their view is. I mean, it, it, that when people find out you're from Ferguson, it's a, they, they've already maybe made up their minds, but now they're face to face with someone who actually lives there and they can find out the real deal. And um, that turned out to be a, a great way of getting um, answers about what that whole experience has been like for people who live in Ferguson. Mm-hmm. And they all said that it's hurt Ferguson's reputation it's hurt St. Louis's reputation. Um, and we're seeing that continue not, and it's gone well beyond Ferguson. You know, I'm sure as most of you who are aware that, you know, the CEO of Centene basically called out St. Louis and said, if we don't fix the gun violence problem, I'm moving my company. Sure. So that's just another version of the question that you've asked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it, there's no doubt that it has had uh, a negative um, impact, and it has uh, it continues because we're we're still one of the most violent cities in the country. Yeah, and um, it, it doesn't seem like it's getting any better. Yeah, well, this is what happened to me right after uh, that incident. I think it was in the weekend, correct? Uh, I went up on a temp job up to Dubuque, Iowa to join some people from here and in a hotel lobby, watching the news with a bunch of people up there, watch St. Louis Ferguson on fire. And that was eye opening just to watch them watching my hometown, you know, because that was something I don't think any of us expected, you know, the crew up there. And it was, it made you think about, well, what are they thinking about us? Wow. You know. Oh, there, there's no question that, um, you know, the, I, I think the, as is usually the case, I think the local coverage was often more nuanced. One, we understood that the entire St. Louis community wasn't on fire, but if right. you watch CNN over and over and over again, it seemed like the arch was the next thing to melt and fall down. Right, right. You know, I mean, so much of the violence and destruction was confined to a relatively small area. Mm-hmm. But if you don't know St. Louis, right. and whether you're a reporter or whether you're watching news uh, on a network or, you know, something that's not local, you don't really have any sense of scale and you know how big this really is now you know i think we all understand on this conversation that we weren't surprised that a powder keg was just waiting for a match to be lit yeah but there were so many people in my newsroom 
because again, you know, we didn't have any decision makers who looked like me. Hmm. Why are people so upset? Why are people so upset? Well, let me tell you my experience, (laughs) you know, Uh and you know, I had one of my executive producers come over to me to my desk and I'm sure she meant well. And, you know, quite frankly, we don't talk about race until it's absolutely necessary. Right. And so no one had ever asked me what my experience was like growing up as a black man in the St. Louis area. And she was like, um, so have you ever been racially profiled? And I'm like, you must not, you know, I'm thinking to myself, the wheels are turning like, okay, so let me give her the benefit of the doubt because at least she's coming over and asking the question. But if you have any black friends, and she didn't, you know, she had grown up on a, on a farm in uh, rural Illinois, not far from St. Louis, but, you know, she probably hadn't gone to school with any black people, probably maybe had never invited any to her home, didn't, me- didn't make her a bad person, just, you know, she wasn't well-rounded, you know, because she just hadn't had those experiences. And I told her, I said, most black men in America have dealt with that in one way or another. You know, I was, when I was on the morning show, I mean, I was maybe a block from my house in Webster Groves. And all of a sudden there's police lights in my rear view mirror. And I hadn't even been driving long enough to be speeding. And I, you know, I knew I hadn't broken the law. So, you know, I pulled over and, um, you know, I'm not going to engage in police in a way that's going to escalate things that that's, that's pointless. But, you know, I I said to officer, what, you know, what's the problem? Well, there'd been a crime and they were looking for a black guy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I mean, I guess if that's all you got, you know, but they didn't have a car description, you know, and, and that's, you know, (laughs) that's not an uncommon occurrence for any of us. No, right. Not at all. And so, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's important to in a newsroom that's trying to reflect the entire community it's important to have people of color at the the decision making level some of the decisions that we made during ferguson if i had been news director maybe we would have made differently you know, I mean, there's, that's, there's no way to know because I wasn't, I'm just saying, just based on my own life experience, you know, I understood why black people in North County were upset, mm-hmm. Absolutely. but most of the people in our newsroom had no clue. They thought this was just a one-time thing. No, this was just, you know, this was the match that lit the fuse that had been there for decades. And that's ultimately what we found out because the justice department told us that's the way it was, you know, in their report. Yeah. I lived in Ferguson for a brief while when I got out of the service in the seventies. And when I would drive home coming from hanging out with my friends, I would get profiled 
but it wasn't Ferguson. It was another municipality, and I won't even name them because it's irrelevant, but it, it's been going on for so long, you know, and we all deal with it. And like you said, that was the match that lit the keg. Do you have a question, Leonard? Uh, <clears throat> I was just wondering, <laughs> in your all your years of journalism in St. Louis, what was one of the stories that affected you the most that maybe you covered it years ago? Maybe you did an interview years ago and that and, and you still think about it today. Well, there I mean there are several stories that come to mind. Uh and one of them I'm actually uh collaborating on a book about. Um a, I, I did multiple stories on a young woman uh who uh is severely mentally ill. Um and my first story with her was uh, she was going to graduate school at SIU Edwardsville. And uh, she told me the story of when she was an undergraduate at Notre Dame, she had a complete uh, psychiatric breakdown. She was in the hospital for almost two weeks and she was diagnosed with um, schizoaffective disorder, which has elements of schizophrenia, elements of bipolar disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder and anxiety. So this is a cocktail of symptoms that's debilitating if it's not treated. And, uh, but the story was that she had found a support system. She had found the right psychiatrist who in turn had figured out which medicine she should take and which one she shouldn't take. And you know, she is living successfully with a mental illness that would bring most of us to our knees and keep us there. She's a talented musician. She writes music. She plays the piano and viola. Um, she, <laughs> the, the second story that I did with her was um, the, uh, the, the opening shot of the story was her standing in front of a mirror, getting fitted for her wedding dress, you know, a very symbolic moment for any young woman. And then we hear her say, I never thought this day would happen because why would anybody want someone like me Hmm. talking about her mental illness? Well, she found a minister who had a background in mental health who was enlightened enough to see the person before the illness. They got married. They're living in San Francisco now. She has twin girls who are about to turn one. And uh, and so we're, she came to me, oh, I guess about a year and a half ago and said she was interested in writing a book and would I be interested in collaborating with her? So for the last year and a half, you know, she sends me chapters and I use my years of writing ability to try to, you know, move things around and make it flow and make it sound better. And, um, you know, we just got um, a, a positive development with a literary agent who has asked for it to see our first three chapters to determine whether or not she'll take the project on. Uh, so that's one. Um, 
One involves Whitey Herzog. In 1983, the year after the Cardinals won their first World Series since uh, 67, you know, Whitey Herzog was king, right? Right. Cardinals are back on top. And so I went to my uh, sports director and our news director. I said, we should do like a, a, a detailed profile of Whitey Herzog. People can't get enough about it. Oh, yeah, great idea, great idea. So my idea to make it different was to convince Whitey to wear a wireless microphone during a game and let us videotape it. Well, if those of you who are sports fans know that wireless microphones are very common right now. Mm-hmm. But in 1983, a major league baseball manager putting a wireless microphone on for a local affiliate? No. <laughs> no. I mean, you would be you would have gotten laughed out of the room. Now, luckily, at the time, Channel 5 was carrying a handful of games. Jay Randolph was doing mm-hmm. play-by-play. And so he convinced Whitey to put a wireless microphone on. Okay, great. So we go to the stadium the day that we're going to do this story. And, um, you know, we're in Whitey's office, and and my cameraman is putting the wireless microphone on him. And Whitey's like, I don't know why you want to put a wireless on me. I never say anything during a game. Uh, You know, he's just going on and on. And I'm like, well, that can't possibly be true, could it? You know, I didn't know if he was messing with us or if he literally did not say anything during a game. How do you manage a team and not say anything during a game? So it just seemed insane. But nevertheless, I was worrying, <laughs> right? What if he doesn't say anything? <laughs> so so we have they've given us a blank check. I mean, we're following Whitey around the clubhouse before the game. You know, he met with a couple of reporters before the game and they let us in there for that. And then he's, and then he's working the room, you know, he's going over to Keith Hernandez. Hey Keith, how you doing? Going over to George Hendrick. George, you ready to go? You You know, getting everybody pumped up and just, you know, testing the, the, the temperature in the room. So, now we're in the dugout and the game's going on and, and we get Whitey talking to Hub Kittle, the pitching coach. And at one point, Joaquin Andahar was pitching <laughs> and, and, he was, and he was struggling that day. He was getting lit up and, uh, and Whitey goes over to Hub. You think I ought to go talk to Joaquin? Yeah, I think you ought to talk to him, Whitey. So he calls timeout and he walks out to the mound. Now, how many baseball games have you watched? Where the pit, where the uh, manager or the pitching coach walks out to the mound, and you wish you could hear yes, what they were saying. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, baseball's missed. They should be miking up everybody, you know, <laughs> because it would be a lot more interesting to watch. So I now, I don't know any of this until later on when I'm going actually going through the tape. I can't hear it in real time, but Whitey goes out there. And so I'm looking at the tape for the first time, and we had to bleep a lot of it. (laughs) And Whitey's like, Joaquin, you won 20 games last year, and you won a World Series game, and you're throwing this bullshit up here at the plate? Now, take the blankety-blank ball and throw it like you blankety-blank can, and let's get this thing going. You know? So that was... That was... uh, that was the first gem, 
<laughs> why he gave me and then um and then there was later on there was a, like a five or a six run rally and whitey's in the dugout like the conductor of an orchestra right you know he's like three batters ahead of what's taking place on the field he goes over to mike ramsey hey mike if this happens you're gonna pinch it blah blah, blah. and then he goes over another guy hey if this happens you're gonna do this i mean it was just like i couldn't have scripted it any better you know, to demonstrate in a tangible way why he was considered one of the top managers in baseball. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we wound up doing like a three-part series uh, every night at 10, and they gave me like four, four and a half minutes, you know, which never happened for a sports piece. And my when it was over, my general manager wrote me a handwritten note saying it was one of the best sports profiles that he'd ever seen. You know, so... You know, I I did a fantastic job on it. I'm very proud of it, especially for a young sportscaster. You know, uh, I was still I was still learning my craft. So, same story, but fast forward to around 2010. Okay, Channel Five has a weekly Cardinals show, mm-hmm. and. For one of the shows, they resurrected a lot of that three-part series that I had done on Whitey. Oh, wow. And they re-edited it and reworked it, but it was a lot of the same material. And people were coming up to Whitey on the street and saying, hey, I just saw you on uh, Channel 5, and I saw that piece that Art Holiday did back in 83, and, man, it's really good. Well, Whitey had never seen it. And so his um, secretary, personal assistant, whatever, uh, called our newsroom and said, uh, can you all put that Art Holiday series on Whitey, put it on a DVD and send it to us? Well, of course, we're going to do it. You know, we're going to sure. say yes. So several weeks later, I get a phone call at my desk. Art, Whitey hurts out. And I'm like, Whitey, <laughs> how you doing? You know, again, another phone call I'm not expecting. And um, he started getting emotional because he was explaining how he gathered his grandkids together and put the DVD in and watched it with his grandkids. (laughs) Grandpa was all about, because they weren't born, you know, back when he was, you know, running the Cardinals. And he thanked me for doing it back then and for sending the DVD. And he said, you know, anytime you need anything, all you have to do is ask. And I'll never forget when, uh, when Stan Musial was getting his uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom, I wanted to get a comment from Whitey. And so I called him, and he was out running errands. I mean, he was obviously busy. And so I'm thinking, well, you know, okay, I'll have to go in a different direction. And he goes, I'll just stop by the TV station. We'll do it there. You know, so, so from 1983 to 2010, that one story that I did on Whitey Herzog continued to have a life and, and it changed my relationship with him. Um, you know, so that was pretty cool. Yeah. So the, any, anything that, anything that has first black attached to it, um, usually the, the individual in that position is treated more as a novelty than as uh, a serious, you know, 
candidate for whatever that is. Um, so, so with you laughing, you well aware of, of what I'm talking about. Oh, no, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, and, and I, I, I'm completely honest with people. Uh, even when I'm talking with people that I'm trying to hire, you know, I say it's not a coincidence. I'm the first black news director in almost 75 years at KSDK. You know, it's a great time to be a black employee in Tegna right now because my company has seen the light and they're trying to find as many talented people of color as they can uh, and make it easier to find a path to management because they understand that that's going to be part of surviving right now in local TV because, you know, our audience is getting older and it's dying. Young people aren't waiting for the six o'clock news or the 10 o'clock news to get their news. They've been getting it all day on their phone or their iPad or their tablet or their laptop. You know, so if we don't, if we don't give more people a reason to watch, I don't want to say we're going to perish, but it's just going to be harder because we've seen over time that the, the audience is shrinking. Um, but getting back to your original point, um, you know, in my case, it means other people didn't get the opportunity. I'm not the first person who was qualified. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. You know, mm -hmm. are you trying to tell me that Julius Hunter couldn't have done the same thing? Right. Of course not. You know, I don't know if he wanted to, number one, but was he ever given the opportunity to? Uh, you know, I, I don't know, but, um, you know, I remember at my very first job in Oklahoma city, I was in the lunch room and, uh, this salesman comes in and we'd never spoken before, you know, so he decided that our first conversation was going to be about whether I was hired because I was black. Mm -hmm. Now. Again, that's a conversation I've replayed many, many times because mm -hmm. I got a lot more I could say in 2021 <laughs> than as my 21 year old self. Mm -hmm. I did okay then, but you know, I, I would have, I would have lit him up in 2021. Well, of course. Um, but I told him, I said, look, why don't you go talk to the guy who hired me? Cause I got the job. Mm -hmm. End of conversation. Mm -hmm. But you know, that's, this is what the, these are the microaggressions that we deal with many days during our lives. And, you know, cause I, I used to have, whenever I would speak on college campuses and high school campuses, uh, inevitably a black student would ask how difficult is it to be a black person coming into this business? Mm -hmm. And I tell them that your time would be much better spent on the things that you have control over mm. and what you have control over Sorry, I don't know that. is how hard you work, how you nurture your own individual talent to become as good as you are so that when your big break does come along, you've been doing the work all along and you're ready to take advantage of it. You know, is someone going to come along and say something that makes you mad? Probably. 
but you don't have any control over that. Why waste time talking about it? You know, you're, you know, if I was at the University of Missouri, I would say, look, you're one of the top journalism schools in the world. And you've got some of the greatest instructors in the world. Spend your time on that, on taking advantage of this incredible opportunity. Whatever else is going to happen, it's going to happen. And then you deal with it at the time. But to be sitting here and worrying about it when it may or may not happen is just, it's just a waste of energy. But, it, you know, it's, I mean, it's a real thing, you know, sure. I mean, but, you know, I mean, if I, if I encountered that gentleman today, you know, you know, it'd be like the song lyric, how you like me now. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, I, I just, I, so I, I understand um, their fascination with uh, seeing us as, and, and I say seeing us as uh, anomalies that, that we don't deserve to be in the places that we get to, or that somehow we've got, um, we've gotten a, a leg up that, they didn't have an opportunity yet. They didn't see their, their privilege in their life. I, I just think it's interesting that that they're willing to voice that and not see that as something that's problematic, even if they were asked, you know, how did you get this job? You know, did you know somebody? You know, um, because I, I think a lot of times if you ask them that, they, they get offended because they, they want to be seen as being competent because, because everybody wants to be recognized for what they do and not just for who they are. But yet, you know, they're willing to ask those questions of other people and, and, not, and not be willing to accept that for themselves. Well, you know, I mean, in, in the age group that's represented on this podcast, Okay, we've experienced uh, multiple decades of racial progress and inequity mm -hmm. in this country. And, you know, if we went back far enough, it, you could ask a white male the same question I was asked. Do you think you were hired because you were white? And, and the answer would be, it, it wouldn't be necessarily truthful but the answer would be yeah they were mm -hmm. and we weren't <laughs> you know and so there was so much catch-up to be played in terms of hiring people of color over the decades that many of us have been the first of one sort or another i just hope we get to a point where that ceases to be a topic of conversation because that will mean that more people got opportunities. You know, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm, you know, the post just profiled me and I get it. And, um, you know, you all are, are asking to speak to me and, and I understand that I'm old school though. I'm, I'm not particularly comfortable being the story because I'm not the story, right. but I'm not naive. You know, I understand that, um, first of all, representation matters, you know? So if a black kid reads my post-dispatch article or sees this interview, then they can see themselves becoming the news director of a TV station. That matters. 
you know, I, I, when I saw the movie Hidden Figures about these wonderful black female mathematicians, which basically meant that they were brainiacs, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And why didn't I know that story as a child? What would that have meant to a young black kid growing up in St. Louis or St. Charles to see mathematics at such a high level that one of the astronauts said, if so-and-so says it's all right, then I'm ready to get on the rocket. What would that have meant to the self-esteem and the the possibilities for a young, you know, so I, when I'm when I'm talking to my staff about inclusiveness and making sure that periodically we talk to as many different types of people in our community as we can, part of that is because kids are watching. You know, so if you've got expert after expert after expert talking about COVID and none of them look like us, what message does that send? Mm -hmm. Along a similar track, we recently refined our mugshot policy because mugshot after mugshot after mugshot of young African-American men has a negative impact. It's part of the reason that if you see a young black man walking down the street, that you automatically want to walk across on the other side. You know, one of my favorite stories, you were asking me earlier about stories that um, have stuck out. I interviewed this uh, uh, young piano prodigy named Royce Martin. Um, he, uh, He's at Berkeley School of Music right now. When I interviewed him, uh, he was in high school. He had only been playing the piano for a handful of years. You know, it just came naturally to him. And then beyond that, he had the drive to really want to be great. But he wore dreads. And so part of my, one of the reasons that I love doing that story is because it defied stereotypes. You know, usually if, 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 if a white person would see a teenager with dreads, they don't automatically think, oh, he's a piano prodigy. <laughs> you know, they're probably thinking something a lot worse. And so I, I asked him, we were, we were walking through the hallways of his school, and I said, you know you're defying a lot of stereotypes because of the way you wear your hair and the way you dress and that people are all automatically making assumptions about you. And, and he said, yeah, I understand that. And I want to destroy stereotypes, but, but the, the money soundbite at the end of this section was, I like my dreads. I like Mozart. <laughs> right. Things that we wouldn't normally associate. Right. With right? each other. Right. Exactly. You you guys uh, either one of you guys have another question? Oh, I'm good. It was. I just want to say, uh, Miss Holiday, it was a. It was a pleasure, and a privilege just to get here and sit here and talk to you. I'm, I, you know, just watching you on television all these years, 
uh, it, I never knew I would have a chance to converse with you. So it's, it's been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. Uh, I thank you. I appreciate the kind words. Same here. Uh, pleasure uh, speaking with you. We did meet for a brief interview a few years ago, but I, you probably do so many you would remember. Well, that and I, you know, I have an old brain, so uh, remembering much of anything is more of a challenge these days. But uh, I, I hope yeah. I was on my best behavior. Oh yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was great. So I have a couple of questions, and then I'm gonna, and then, and then I'm gonna let you go. And sure. Um, so the first is, um, what did your wife think? Not for the about 42 years the about this, about the recent development, about that you take a news director. Cause I'm sure she was looking at, um, you know, you being around the house a little more, uh, maybe some, some more trips, but, uh, how, how did she take the news director job? Well, first of all, she listened. You know, I mean, that's that's typically what we do for each other uh, in our individual careers, because she's had, uh, you know, different things, uh, different positions and different opportunities come up in her uh, life as a as a as an educator, you know, former assistant superintendent and, you know, the various roles that she's played over the years, um, you know, and I. I wouldn't presume to know everything about that world. And she knows that she doesn't know everything about my world, but we're a sounding board for each other. Sometimes it just helps to talk out loud. Um, you know, and so w whatever either one of us has decided about big decisions, the other is, you know, is going to support them. And, um, you know, it's interesting because, and I still have conversations with her because, you know, she has hired and fired people for many years because of her uh, long uh, tenure in, in handling uh, human resources uh, in an educational setting and, uh, and dealing with uncomfortable conversations. You know, so I've learned a lot from her. And whenever I have a situation that I'm wrestling with um, related to you know, handling personnel, uh, she's a valuable resource. So uh, from that standpoint, I knew that if I, if I knew a lot of these situations were gonna be part of the job and uh, I knew that I would have a valuable resource that I could, uh, you know, ask questions of that maybe I wouldn't necessarily ask my boss, um, you know, so, so that's been helpful actually and, and, and has made uh, the transition easier. You and Jennifer Blome was just, you know, St. Louis. And um, so I read, you know, where she got out of news. Right. Um, and then she's, she's now doing her radio show. And, um, and now you guys are, are back together again. So, so, you know, give me a little bit about the history of that relationship and, 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 you know, what's it like getting back together, uh, doing what you, what you're doing now after, you know, so many years. Well, uh, I mean, um, unfortunately, I'm not doing the radio show anymore. Oh, okay. um, so, but I mean, we did it together for about a year and a half. But part of my decision-making process on becoming news director was that there wasn't going to be time for that. You know, it, this is a 60 or 70 hour a week type deal. And, um, but going back, uh, 
Jennifer and I started at KSDK the same year, 1979. We're essentially the same age. She's a month older than me, and we're both born on the 17th, which is uh, weird because both of my older brothers are also born on the 17th. So 17 is kind of a significant number. So, um, but we started, we were both doing weekends, uh, weekend newscasts uh, when we were hired in 79. She was doing weather and I was doing sports. So our offices were in different parts of the building. So really the only time I saw her was on the set. And we were both, you know, if, if, if 25 is being a kid or, or whatever you want to use to describe that time in your life, I mean, we were still young people trying to figure out this career path that we had chosen. And, you know, I was kind of a, to use her words, I was a hothead. You know, if, if my, if my sports highlights messed up or, you know, if something went wrong with my show, you know, I just got, you know, I just, I was an idiot Mm -hmm. and, you know, I I just got really frustrated and angry and, you know, just a lot of stupid stuff that none of it matters. And, um, you know, so we kind of knew each other just like you kind of know people that you work with, but you don't really know them. You know, they're just, you're around them a lot, but you don't necessarily, you know, so like we weren't like friends or anything. We were just coworkers. Um, but I knew her well enough to know that in 89, when I was asked to join the morning show that she was already on, I knew enough to know that it wasn't like working with a total stranger, you know, and um, she went out of her way to make it easy for me to join the show. And we quickly developed this trust that the best co-anchors have with each other, that if something goes wrong, I've got your back and you've got my back. And we're going to minimize the damage and get the show back on the train tracks. And so that was part of it. And then, I don't know, we just have similar senses of humor. So we made ourselves laugh all the time. And the first time it happened on the air, we thought we were going to get fired. But the switchboards lit up and everybody that called said, oh, that was great that was great you know and you know so over time during that 22 years the audience just gave us permission to be ourselves and it wasn't any plan it was just you know we we just became uh great co-workers and and it clicked you know and i think whenever you sit two people next to each other Either it doesn't work at all, or it kind of works, or on those rare occasions, it works better than anyone ever expected. And that's when the chemistry part comes in. When it just, when it's just very organic, um, you know, and we're, you know, we, we reached the point where we were getting a lot of attention from other stations in our 
uh, corporate family and they wanted to know what our secret was. And we just kind of looked at each other like, we don't really have a secret. And then the promotional part department was trying to do some promos about Art and Jennifer. And then they wanted us to be actors and we were kind of resistant because we just wanted to be, honestly, we just kind of wanted to be left alone because we were doing fine on our own. And, but when you start thinking about what you're doing, it becomes less authentic. You know, we weren't trying to be funny. Sometimes the absurdity of morning television takes over. And the next thing you know, you know, these two idiots are laughing and, but we tried to include the audience. It wasn't like the cool kids just hanging out. We tried to include the audience because I think that's, we understood that part of it. It's gotta, it's even when we're, you know, doing our thing and, and occasionally laughing, it still had to be about the audience and not just us. And so, um, you know, we, we had a lot of success. I mean, we had the highest ratings in the country for a couple of years. Um, you know, uh, things were going well. I mean, we had, we were turning down commercial inventory, which hardly ever happens. I mean, there were a lot of advertisers that wanted to get on our show and they kept making the commercial breaks longer, but that's a turn off to viewers. Sure. You know, so you got to have this fine line of money making, but not being away from the viewers so long that you give them an excuse to pick up the remote. You know, 22 years, finally Fox 2 caught us. And, you know, the consultants came in and uh, they ultimately decided that I was the weak link and I was voted off the show. Oh, wow. And uh, so now I'm 30 years into my career. And I'm a general assignment reporter for the first time. And, um, you know, I wasn't happy about the decision. I'm still unhappy about the decision, even though it's been, you know, over 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you'll never convince me. You know, if we were if we were the solution for 22 years, why would we suddenly become the problem? You know, maybe the other people just got better. I mean, they did. I mean, it took them 10 years to catch us. So they must have gotten better. But, um, you know, I at that point, I had to make a decision about how I was going to behave in our newsroom. Because there were very few people in the newsroom that agreed with the decision. There were a lot of viewers that didn't agree with it. Still don't agree with it. Right. I mean, I can't believe that 11 years later, people are still talking about Art and Jennifer. That just seems insane to me because people have very short attention spans. So what that tells me is that we made a connection. You just most certainly. And that, and that people appreciated that, that we were just being ourselves and, and trying to bring the audience along every morning. Um, but I could have been very disruptive in our newsroom. You know, I could have undermined the authority of our news director uh, and I could have raised hell. And I decided I'm just gonna take the high road I still have a job to do and you know that's how i'm going to approach this now i did tell the news director i said you're going to look back on this and regret it because the last month that we were together we were in first place we actually won but they'd already made the commitment to change and 
you know, but you know, it's a business, you know, I get it. You know, I mean, you, when you decide to become part of television news, you got to toughen up because you're going to be criticized and critiqued every day internally and by the audience. There are going to be things in your career that happen that you don't like. There's going to be disappointments. I've experienced all of those things. And they're not fun. Now, it's a high-risk, high-reward business. When things are going well, man, this is one of the coolest jobs ever. You get to meet people that you wouldn't meet. You get to tell stories that hopefully make an impact in one way or another. You get to serve the community that you're in. But, but it's a business, and you can never stop forgetting that. And so that means the decisions are made about me or you or, or you know, reporter A or, you know, whoever that you don't like. And so then what are you going to do? Are you going to, you know, are you going to become a toxic personality? Or are you just going to man up and, and do your job? And so that's what I decided to do. And, um, you know, I, yeah, I mean, that's what I decided to do. Yeah, you didn't I, make I, it. I could have taken a different path, but I didn't. But you didn't. I want to thank you right. so very much for having uh, taken the time to talk to us today. I really do appreciate it. Uh, I always like to tell our guests that I'm going to keep you in the Rolodex. Uh, hopefully, we'll get a chance to talk again. Well, I'm hiding in plain sight, so very not good. hard to find. That concludes this episode of Altitude Adjustment. And thank you for listening. This podcast is streamed live on YouTube and Twitch.tv and is designed for listener interaction. Visit the website, thelionsdenstl.wixsite.com forward slash home to join the discussion. The audio version of Altitude Adjustment is available where you get your podcasts, including Stitcher.com, the iTunes Store, and the Google Play Music Store, to name a few. Remember that the internet is powered by your likes, shares and comments so please like share and comment on this and other episodes of altitude adjustment because it matters and as always look out for the other guy because they may not be looking out for you